in, that's the typical way that we, that is to say straight white men, often respond to this. Um, yes, I know racism's bad, but my family never owned slaves. Um, or, you know, yes, I know that sexism's bad, but I never raped anybody. Um, and so we have the individual opt-out option. Since I didn't rape anyone, or since my family didn't own slaves, the conversation about racism or sexism doesn't have anything to right. do with me. Hey, it's me, Chance, with Punk Journalism, and I want to thank you for listening to my discussion with Professor Michael Kimmel on his book, Angry White Men, Masculinity at the End of an Era. Aside from writing that book, Professor Kimmel's also authored Manhood in America, The Politics of Manhood, The Gendered Society, and the bestseller, Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. According to his bio, Professor Kimmel is one of the world's leading experts on men and masculinities. He's the SUNY Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies at Stony Brook University. And with funding from the MacArthur Foundation, he founded the Center for Study of Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook in 2013. A tireless advocate for of engaging men to support gender equality, Kimmel has lectured at more than 300 colleges, universities, and high schools. He's delivered the International Women's Day Annual Lecture at the European Parliament, the European Commission, and the Council of Europe, and has worked with the Ministers for Gender Equality of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden in developing programs for boys and men. Finally, he was recently qu called, quote, the world's most prominent male feminist, end quote, in the Guardian newspaper in London. I just want to make sure that you are aware of what I've got coming up. I've got a couple interviews already recorded, just need to get them edited. Uh, the next one coming up will be with Squeaky Springs. She's the founder of Punk Rock Burlesque, a burlesque troupe out of Denver, and we're going to be talking mostly about body positivity. Uh, after that, I spoke to New York Times bestselling author Aaron James on his book, Assholes, A Theory. Professor James is from the philosophy department at UC Irvine in California. I want to make sure that you can stay up to date with everything that I'm working on by going to facebook.com slash punk journalism, twitter.com slash punk journalism, and instagram.com slash punk underscore journalism. You can download all my content on iTunes uh, and SoundCloud. If you appreciate what I'm doing, all that I ask is that you go to iTunes and give me a, a positive review and subscribe to me there. Finally, take a look at everything I've done up to date by going to punk-journalism.com. So I knew this was going to be an, a big undertaking when I got like two pages in and I already had a couple of notes, or yeah. you know, a page of notes already. So I'm going to get the most important question out of the way first. Do you love Bruce Springsteen or do you hate Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> um, no, I'm a big Bruce fan, actually, to be honest, um, because I think that, that uh, Springsteen is able to do something that is really kind of remarkable. He takes he represents in a way the white working class, the populist version of the white working class, who has been screwed, who's been, uh, who's, you know, who's been downsized, you know, and he takes their anguish and instead of pushing it to the right, he pushes it to the left. Um, and he does that both in form and in content. Uh, by form, I mean that he, he performed for years, you know, in an integrated band, um, his very first band had two African-Americans, David Sanchez, as well as Clarence Clemens. He was always, you know, he always saw um, class as more important than race. 
Um, and that was really important. So that that's the, the first thing I would say. The second thing is, the thing about his, his music itself is if you were to read his lyrics alone, boy, there's very few things that are more depressing um, than reading the lyrics of the river or darkness at the edge of town. And yet he his his sound is so anthemic, it's so loud and forceful and propulsive that in fact you end up feeling uplifted. And uh, so I think that contradiction, that combination, is really uh, is one of the driving forces of his of his music. The reason that you initially came to to my attention as I was I was writing a blog about a, this recent trend that I see amongst people in my demographic, straight white males. And how you can't seem to, quote unquote, joke about anything anymore because everybody is supposedly so sensitive about everything. So I was, I was motivated to start writing my blog after thinking about why people feel this way and kind of like how I noticed this trend more becoming more prevalent in the last couple of years. And I always throw the number 2016 out there. And uh, I think we both know why that is. Yeah. Um, it, and it's almost you, you, you mentioned the word mantra a lot and in, in your book. And this is I, I call it like a meme or a mantra where these guys say these things like, oh, you can't joke about anything anymore because everybody's so sensitive nowadays. Like like they're having an original thought, but it's obviously something that they hear amongst their groups of people all the time. Right. Kind of, you know, what I've deciphered from my own personal perspective is, you know, just what you allude to, I think, in general in your book is that for the first time in history in the last, I would say, to be conservative about, you know, this guess, I would say five or ten years, minorities, uh, you know, truly marginalized groups are starting to have a voice for the, you know, for the, for the first time, at least a little bit of, of clout at all. And... Uh, for that reason, there's the perception that that white middle class men are kind of being pushed to the side or being ignored. When this this isn't the case at all, it's almost kind of like a you know uh, an only child who they have a sibling that comes along. All of a sudden, they have to share the spotlight a little bit, and they think that they're being you know discriminated or or marginalized or pushed out, or they're not getting enough attention. But it's it's more the fact that. Now they, they are being in a position where they are sort of forced to have to acknowledge everybody else except for themselves. I always think that the, the people who are least likely to embrace democracy are the aristocracy, right? Because suddenly they're not the center of the universe. Um, and there are some really good experiments that were done by social psychologists in the 70s and 80s, I remember, where people would read a passage, um, <laughs> for example, about gender or about sexuality or about race, and they would say the words black and white or heterosexual, homosexual or women and men an equal number of times, exactly equal. The passages were perfectly measured. And the, the respondents invariably said things like, the whole thing was about gay people. The whole thing was about women. Um, and so when you're used to 90% or 95% of all the attention, and now you're only getting 85% of all the attention, you, and this is what my book is about in a way, you suddenly feel like, oh my God, they're paying attention to everybody but me. 
So, so what, in a way, though, and this is the important part of this, I think, this is the part that is the sort of theoretical payoff, if you will, is, um, is that we, we don't ordinarily think about how racism or sexism or homophobia has distorted our perception of things. We think of it as normal. We don't think of it as distorted. And when suddenly it's pointed out to us, a lot of people think like, you know, they get very, they get very testy, they get very defensive. Like, no, I'm not racist. No, I'm not sexist. I know a guy. I have a black friend. Right. Yeah. So, kind of what um, it was kind of coincidental. Right before I started reading the book uh, on Columbus Day, which a lot of people are calling Indigenous Peoples Day. I there's a guy that. I'm, I know through work, he's kind of a caricature for what you, the, the kind of person that you describe in your book. And just about, I don't, I don't know, like he, he kind of exudes a, neg a negativity of, of marginalization and how people like him are being disenfranchised and pushed to the side. And uh, on Columbus Day, he, uh, he posted, quote, is there a way to filter your own news feed or does only Facebook get to do that for you? The indigenous wokeness day posts are noted, but are now tiresome. And I think that that really illustrates this kind of person who they can't be bothered with, with even having to acknowledge anything that is out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, I think that, it, it, you know, I think we're in a transition period, frankly. Um, I think, you know, for a long time, you know, white men were very comfortable and everybody else was pretty uncomfortable. Now, it is not where we wanted to end up to say, okay, now everyone's uncomfortable. Oh, great. I mean, this is a stage in which, you know, it's not a matter of, uh, it's not equality to know that women and men are uncomfortable. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transitional period before we can figure out together what that comfort is going to look like. Uh, I, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, my book, one of the things about angry white men as a book, as, as, as an attempt to do research with groups that I didn't agree with was in a sense, because I didn't agree with them because I didn't really understand where they were coming from being, you know, relatively middle-class, you know, uh, comfortable, uh, straight white man. Um, I felt like I wanted to be somewhat compassionate. I wanted to be empathic. I wanted to see the world sure. from the place that they, where they are from. And so that was my, so that, that was why I, I kind of did the book was for people like me in my little blue bubble in Brooklyn to understand what was going on in the rest of the country. And, um, and what I, what I found was that they do feel particularly disenfranchised. They feel like no one's listening to them. Here you have a world where everybody's getting to claim victim status. Everybody's a victim, Every you know, whether it's racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever. And these guys go, well, what about us? We're, aren't we victims too? And you can't just say to these guys, no, you're not, get over it, right? I mean, that's not because uh, that, that, that's not going to, to, to engage with them where they are. You don't tell someone, you know, I, you know, I feel disenfranchised. I feel like no one's listening to me. You're not going to say to them, you're wrong. Everyone's listening to you. But, you know, you can't tell someone their feelings are wrong. Their feelings are real. Their feelings are their feelings. 
Um, but what you can say is, let's look at the analysis that your feelings are, are based on. And the analysis is that they are getting what, what, what I deserve. They're getting the stuff that I deserve. So what I try to say to these guys very often is I think you are right to be angry. You have gotten a bad deal. But I believe that you're delivering your, 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 your mail to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, that it is not LGBT people who outsourced your job. Right. It's not feminist women who are responsible for climate change. You know, uh, it's not, you know, you know, it, 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 it's not, um, I don't know, you know, it, 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 it's the other, it's, it's the groups that have, in an organized political way, disenfranchised working class people, both black and white and, uh, you know, and, 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 and um, to my mind, that the, the there we need a kind of broad based um, you know opposition to the the people who have really disenfranchised us. Sure. Well, so it's, that's, it's, that's kind of what I where I kind of uh, you know leave it. Yeah, and it I definitely got that from the book, and it's you point out an irony that we look around for boogeyman to blame for this this situation while praising the merits of of what you know ronald reagan did through free market capitalism by you know outsourcing jobs overseas and and uh, corporations like walmart kind of monopolizing everything mm-hmm. and taking away small businesses and i i think that even in the term make america great again that speaks for itself very well and it not so subtly implies that america was at one time great and until some you know somebody fill in the blank whoever you know what you want to fill that blank in with came along and make it, made it not great. And so here I am, you know, to swoop in and make America great again for you. And I, I know that Trump definitely tapped into a base by connecting with a group of people who felt marginalized after the Obama years leading up to that. We had a, you know, president who focused on people who were actually marginalized, you know, Obama focusing on these people. Uh, and, and I think, and this is, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that he was a president who spoke above a fourth grade reading level and that kind of puts people off, unfortunately. And the fact that he was trying to, you know, focus his attention of, you know, bringing everybody out of poverty and circumstantially that was, you know, included minorities and, and other marginalized groups. I think it again felt like there was you know, focus taken off of, of, of the demographic of people that I fall into, straight white males. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that I think that's true. I think there's a couple of things that are important in that. Uh, first of all, you'll, you'll have noticed that the name Trump doesn't even appear in my book. Um, yeah, you, know, you have uh, a, a preface that you until added I re- until I, Yeah, until I rewrote the preface in 2016 because, sure. uh, you know, the book came out in 2013, and in a way I kind of anticipated Trump without analyzing him. Um, but you, so there's, there's two questions in there. There's, the one is, when we say make America great again, um, when was America great? Um, if you ask people who want to make America great again, they say the 50s. And I always think that is the strangest thing I've ever heard. And it's and, and strange for two reasons. First, the reason that they're saying that is, as they used to say in the South, everybody knows their place. Um, you know, there wasn't the kind of racial and, and gender and sexuality, you know, kind of movements that, that are so disrupting right now. Um, abortion was still, you know, illegal. I mean, so all these things. 
But here's the other thing. The Eisenhower administration, which encompassed the 1950s after all, 1952 to 1960, the Eisenhower administration witnessed a greater amount of federal spending um, on, on, you know, for people to, for, to create a middle class than any administration since, um, including Obama. You know, the entire federal high, interstate highway system, all of those public schools, the GI Bill, all of those were efforts to get men who were returning from the war to stabilize the suburban, uh, suburban middle class, to enable people to buy their own homes. I mean, it was a massive outlay of federal funds to support a particular version of America. And now we want to do it, but we don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, and you're right. It is. Uh, it's very interesting that the way that People will long for nostalgia so much these days, and that's that's huge nowadays. This, right. this. I mean, if I were to say to you, um, imagine um, imagine the, your your typical welfare uh, recipient. Most Americans say that that's a black woman in the city. It's actually a rural white person. You know, the, the, far more white people are on are, are on welfare than black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the way that these stereotypes get in, you know, become sort of instituted in our culture means that we often feel like we're um, like we're giving something to others. We're get, being asked to give to others who don't deserve it. So let me let me add one more expression, one more meme, if you will. The motto of the Tea Party was a little bit different than the motto of the Trump uh, campaign. He said, "Take our uh, make make America great again." The Tea Party said, "Let's take our country back." Yeah, from whom? Well, you want to say who you're taking it back from, and secondly, what does the word "our" mean? Mm-hmm. Take sure. our country back. Whose country yeah. is it exactly? Yeah, that's an so interesting subliminal nation, message. We are a nation of immigrants. Everybody here you know, came here on a boat, whether they were forced to or not. <laughs> you know, um, only Native Americans could, could legitimately say, let's take our country back. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so my feeling is that you have to interrogate what that word our actually implies. What does it mean to say our country, not your country? Do you want to draw the line, everyone who's Great great grandparents came here before 1900. Do you want to say? I mean, because there's a lot of different you know ways to to say that. But when you say our country, you're also saying they're trying to take our country away. Sure. You're, you're claiming yeah. an ownership claim, and that's of course the Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day or whatever. Yeah, and it really does plant a seed, and it's it is somewhat subliminal, or it's very subliminal in, in my opinion that it uh, it. You know, it seems like a very you know straightforward message until you you know you really do s- sort of apply that questioning to to what that means of our country and back from whom like and these are these are kind of bumper sticker statements that or uh, you know become pl- things that become platitudes that mm-hmm. we just kind of throw out there but they really do sort of I think. Uh, conjure up some images whether we you know know it or not when we hear that of well somebody took this from me and I need to get it back and um so I want to get back to what you were saying earlier about you know you trying to understand where these people come from and you know why why they think this way why they feel victimized and that you do have sort of an empathetic 
um, feel for them because you know they in in a lot of ways they have been uh, disenfranchised. But why and is it maybe misdirected? And I I feel like I do under, I I can relate to to what they're experiencing and and the frustration that they have because I would say all throughout my 20s for you know a good majority of my 20s I was I had the same mentality and and I did take a similar outlook and it was only I would say like I don't know five or six years ago where that really started to evolve because I opened my mind and my perspective to to other things and other people and other ways of thinking and it started out Years ago for me, when I was, I would say, a senior in high school, um, my girlfriend at the time, she was a year ahead of me in college, or she was in college already, and she would always talk about her sociology professor who was a black activist, and, you know, I became resentful because of all the things that she was saying that, you know, white people in, as a whole were responsible, and I, I felt like, well, I didn't do any of that. Why should I feel responsible for it? So it started to build sort of a resentment. Um, so I didn't go to college until I was 22. And I, I kind of just worked labor jobs where I could listen to talk radio all day. Just I kind of happened upon it. I came across Glenn Beck first, and I was really caught up in that vitriol, just that energy. And, and there was something about it that I just kind of connected to um, just because he kind of throws out these low consciousness sort of messages that I think that it's, it's super easy to grasp onto that because it doesn't really require any, any if all, critical thought. And then when I did go to college, I was all I was really primed up with all of these messages that I'd heard from from people like Beck and Rush Limbaugh. And and uh, then I was at on a college campus and I was encountered with all these crazy, whiny liberals that I heard all these guys talking about and complaining about. And they were apparently destroying <laughs> the country. Yeah. And so it was ironic that I it was I was nothing like people on the right. And I but I felt like I was aligned with them. And in fact, when I would encounter them. They would often remind me that I wasn't part of their club, mostly because of the way I looked and dressed. I was called a fag more than a few times, um, and and it, you know it started. It it's interesting because like the more time I've spent around you know the people on the right, the more that I've dissented from them as opposed to being influenced by them. And most people will say, well, like you know, you're birds of a feather. You know, it's like the more I'm around these people, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm nothing like these people. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm glad that I emerged from that, but I do feel fortunate that I can kind of look back now and I, I know where they're coming from and it's easy to be very judgmental and frustrated with these people, but at the same time, it's like, I was there at one point too. So is it, you know, what's it going to take for people to become, you know, enlightened out of that way of thinking and, and. Well, you know, the, 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 there's a couple of things. First of all, I mean. You know, we do ourselves, that is to say liberals, do ourselves no favors if when people say you're not listening to us, we say you're right, you're not worth listening to. You know, if we say, if we say, you know, all people who follow Trump are idiots and morons and they don't know, you know, whatever. I mean, that's, you know, my feeling is we're just saying, we're just proving to them that they're right and uh, that, that we're not interested in listening to them. I think 
we have to listen to them. Now let's take the very first thing that you said in your conversation with your girlfriend, and let's look at that for a moment, because I think, Chance, that's actually a very, that's the typical way that we, that is to say straight white men, often respond to this. Um, yes, I know racism's bad, but my family never owned slaves. Um, or, you know, yes, I know that sexism's bad, but I never raped anybody. Um, and so we have the individual opt-out option. Since I didn't rape anyone, or since my family didn't own slaves, the conversation about racism or sexism doesn't have anything to right. do with me. It's not guilt by association. Right. And my feeling is that that ignores the way in which we benefit from racism or sexism. Let me give you a really concrete example. Um, I don't know, where do you live? I'm in Denver area, Colorado. Okay, so if you're in Denver and you're, um, you know, and you're in downtown Denver and you, um, and you want to take a taxi, right? You go to the curb and the taxi drives by and you put your hand out and the taxi stops. That's called getting a taxi. Now, oftentimes, a black person will put their hand out and the taxi will drive right by, right? Now, that was so obvious to us here in New York when the former mayor of New York, David Dinkins, had trouble getting a cab to stop for him on one winter evening because he was wearing an overcoat. People, of course, didn't recognize him as the former mayor, but rather they saw a black man and he was going north, which means probably going to Harlem which means that the cab drivers did, didn't stop for him. Now, here's the point that I want to make. You don't see the racism because you put your hand out and the cab stops. That's called hailing a cab. Sure. He puts his hand out and he sees the racism every time a cab goes by. Now, what we need to do is because that's, that's the individual opt-out option. I put my hand out. It seems fair to me. We don't see the unfairness, right? So we it's our job then to begin to, to think about all of the ways in which we then see the unfairness. Um, and then we need, you know, how many times have you walk, been walking down a street on a, a, a dark street at night and a woman is walking on the street coming towards you and she walks, goes to the other side of the street? Now, you want to hold up a sign at that moment that says, not a rapist, you know, like, Absolutely. don't hurt you. But she doesn't know that, sure. right? So we need to understand the experience of, the, the, of those people who are still marginalized so that we can, so we can try to make, make the rules fairer so that it, it is now, of course, I mean, whether or not it's, it's, it's true in, in practice, it's illegal not to stop for someone if they are um, by race or, or, or religion or disability status. It's now in New York City illegal not to stop for someone. That's because we finally got the idea that because just because we didn't see it didn't mean it wasn't happening. There's this new argument that you're you know that you're talking about of racism being a thing of a past of the past and slavery's over civil rights era you know we went through that so everything's okay now and a, a switch all of a sudden flipped and, and made everybody all right and um, I think that something we elected a black guy how can we yeah, this yeah right. And I, I think that the thing that people often disregard is just because policy changes or legislation changes, that doesn't necessarily, you know, auto automatically change the, 
you know, everybody's outlook on everything, all their preconceived notions that they already had. In fact, that might also, uh, you know, even build some resentment, you know, in the South, there's still a lot of tension, obviously. And I was listening to a, uh, I was writing about, you know, the, the blue lives matter movement and, or thin blue line mm-hmm. uh, as it's also known by. And I was listening to a podcast from a podcaster. He's a comedian. His name is Artie, Artie Lang. It's called the Artie, Artie Quitter Podcast. Uh-huh. And he was interviewing Joey and Patrice. He's the founder of the, the Blue Lives Matter movement. And they were talking about how, yeah, it sucked that so many cops were part of the Klan in the 60s. But, quote, that was a long time ago. And, you know, that was then. This is now. And, and we shouldn't be dwelling on, on racism anymore. And to me, like, I feel like... The Blue Lives Matter movement is so obviously a Black Lives you know, a reaction to Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and how tacky that is that it's it's it seems so reactionary. And of course, you know I think that police officers should be treated with with respect in their job, and and uh, and I don't think that they should be they should be uh, you know we should be targeting them in any way. But I also I that's that's kind of how I see that. And. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that on this on this movement coming up? Do you think that this that's related at all to you know your your writing? I actually I, I agree um, you know all you know I, I agree that all lives matter. I agree that blue lives matter. I think that police do an amazing job in trying to you know keep people safe. I also think that they're subject as we all are to uh, various kinds of stereotypes and biases. And rather than say that they're they're not, they, they should acknowledge as we all should that we all are subject to these. So here's the one thing I would say I guess about it is you know to say black lives matter is a way of saying that the the police are very likely to shoot unarmed black men because they fit a very a stereotype and they feel the individual police officers feel threatened by young black males. It's not based on nothing, but it's also based on stereotypes. Um, so uh, blue lives matter, on the other hand, is a way of saying is a way of trying to even the score. And I think that's a real mistake. Um, I think instead we should, you know, we should say, why is it that yes, these young black men are being, you know, who are innocent and are, are, are being shot by police because they, they feel threatened by them? Um, you know, why can't we learn to use non-lethal force? Why can't we learn to sort of, you know, see what's going on before we shoot? Um, so, so, you know, and, and the answer to that is, um, what, you know, it would have been like saying slave owners' lives matter, <laughs> you know, um, Nazis' lives, Germans' lives matter, because Jewish, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously nonsensical on its face. Um, the idea of make, calling attention to inequality, you reproduce the inequality by trying to level it. Yeah, well, and it sort of, it definitely demeans that, that movement of black lives matter by you know the the all lives matter thing it's it's tricky because of course all lives matter but somebody put it to me this way it's like you go to the doctor for a broken arm and you say doctor my arm's broken and he says well all bones matter yeah right. <laughs> it's like well this is the one that needs attention right now and it's yeah. very obvious that right. it we're, t- we're talking about the arm right now yeah right 
Um, so I want to mention radio again, talk radio. And, and this is something, again, that I personally really connected with in your book because that was, that's what really swept me up in, in this frenzy all those years ago. And uh, I think that AM radio is something that it's, it's a very archaic uh, form of, of media content delivery and its demographic is getting older and older and older and eventually I think it's going to I personally feel like it's going to wane off but you you see people since you've written your book in 2013 there are our pundits like Ben Shapiro and Ben Crowder um, even Jordan Peterson who's who's come up recently who are kind of taking the mantle of these guys and while I don't agree with them I think that the the format of podcasting it it at least allows for longer, more in-depth discussions with more nuance. Um, the AM radio just can't do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you see these guys? I do, you know, like I said, I don't agree with them, but I do think that they present more compelling, more intellectual, more well thought out arguments than this, you know, the sound bites that somebody like Limbaugh throws out. How do you feel about these guys? Well, uh, you know, as you say, they're um, they have the veneer of being more intellectual. The way that Richard Spencer, um, you know, uh, has more of the veneer of being in the intellectual version of white supremacy, um, you know, sort of sound more or less reasonable and sound more or less, you know, sen you know, uh, sensible. But, you know, I'm a social scientist as well, and the empirical evidence that they, you know, that they, um, uh, you know, that they promote tends to fall apart. Um, I don't agree with their analysis, but they channel that same kind of um, anger and rage into uh, into what's more, a more acceptable version at the moment. Now, I would say, um, you know, that, that, and I think that, you know, uh, some of them are upset by multiculturalism, and some of them are upset by uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, anti-racism or anti-sexism. Some of them are, you know, but, but uh, and, and some of them have a more positive message than others. Um, what, what tends to go uh, come, uh, uh, unite them from the guys I talked about in Angry White Men is this is a more sophisticated version. Um, it's more it's more substantive, so on that I agree. But it's the same notion of grievance that somehow out what was ours is being taken away. Number one, and you two, call that aggrieved entitlement, right? Right. So what was what we believe we are we deserve is being taken away from us. That's point one, and point two, given to all these others who don't really deserve it. Right. Um, that they don't deserve it, we do. And, um, and, and uh, I think, and that seems to be a kind of common element in the, um, uh, you know, in this discussions of multiculturalism or, you know, gender, race, racial equality. Um, you know, the message that Jordan Peterson gives is a little bit different. You know, he opposes a lot of what passes as multiculturalism. But his message to young men is basically, you know, stand up straight, look straight ahead, give a firm handshake, be present for God's sake. I mean, he's more like kind of a younger version of Robert Bly um, from the 80s and early 90s that, that you know, these guys, um, that men are kind of listless and aimless and they don't really know where they're going and they need to find more purpose in their lives. 
they've been kind of shut down. I mean, I think that's a lot of what you see happening in the, uh, you know, with some of his work, with Jordan Peterson's message, and why it resonates so much with younger men. So one thing that I, I know that you have to get going here in about seven yeah. minutes, and uh, one thing that I really wanted to touch on that's, un unfortunately, it's a it's always a relevant topic, and that's of gun violence. Uh, what? Gun violence. Oh, yeah. Right, and it's it never seems to be going anywhere, and it's always relevant, unfortunately. And uh, several months ago, I talked to two different sociologists. One's a criminologist here at Colorado State. His name's Prabha Unithon, and... And uh, another is Jennifer Carlson. She's at uh, uh, Arizona State, I believe, uh, or University of Arizona. And she's also a sociologist. And she's written uh, at length on this topic as well. And I asked both of them, what is, since Columbine, why have all these mass shootings been taking place specifically by white men and you know, even more specific, it often seems like very young white men. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, you talk at length about this in your book. And they, you know, she, she cites Columbine as, as the catalyst. This was mm -hmm. kind of the, the thing that, you know, that inspired a lot of other people to, to do this. And they both, uh, you know, uh, uh, Professor Unithon really emphasized that, you know, looking, going back to boyhood, that boys typically in, in all cultures all worldwide, um, the only emotion that they're really allowed to express is anger. And so they kind of suppress everything else and they don't get nurtured in the way that they should to be, you know, to, to, to be more emotionally developed. And, and, you know, this is kind of what causes these, these outbursts a lot of times. Like, what do you see as the, as, as the cause and how do we address this from this point forward? Well, I mean, you know, I think that they're, 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 they have part of the story. Um, you know, we talk about this. It's really an amazing phenomenon. Um, when we talk about these, let's just say the mass shooters in schools, okay? The, shooter, the school shooters um, have a very, very simple profile. They are virtually all, with, I mean, with very, very few exceptions, straight white boys. And they're not, they tend to not be urban. They tend to be suburban or rural. Um, and so what don't we talk about? When we talk about school violence, what's the dominant way that we talk about it? Mental illness. Um, we have a mental illness problem. These guys are all mentally ill. Uh, there's this individual psychopathology. And let's face it, many of these guys were, you know, did have significant problems. I'm not, I'm not saying that they didn't. But if it was mental illness, is it really true that no girls suffer from mental illness? Um, that it's only boys? Um, no, true. no, of course not. Um, so it's boy, it's mental illness plus something else, right? Um, it can't just be that. Well, is it guns? Well, girls have access to guns too, so it can't just be mental illness plus guns. There has to be something else in, in, in involved in that. And then you, you know, and, and it's very interesting, Chance, because when we talk about white people who commit acts of, of violence like this, we do, we tend to go toward the psychological. It was an individual with mental illness or access to guns or whatever. But imagine if all of these school shooters were black girls. Then we would be talking about race and gender, right? Because when it's a white person who does something, we tend to disaggregate it. We make it an individual problem. But if it was a black person, 
we would say, oh, something about that culture. Or if it was a black girl, oh, those girls, you know, the, they're just as violent as the boy. I mean, in other words, we would make it about race or gender. Whereas when it's straight white boys, it's always about individuals and mental illness. So I think we have to start looking at, at, at that. The second thing is don't just focus on the shooter. Focus on the circumstances of his life. It turns out that so many of these boys were bullied and picked on and beat up. And that's the, that's the Columbine version. Um, these guys were beat up all the time, routinely. You know, guys would throw Coke bottles at them from moving, you know, pickup trucks. And they were constantly, you know, uh, gay bashed and beat up. So... Now the, the male socialization that we're supposed to you know, not express our feelings except anger, that comes in. Because what all of these boys did since Columbine, one of the things that's different pretty much with all of the school shootings since then, whether it was Santa Barbara or you know, several of the other school shootings, they were boys who wanted to die. They wanted to commit suicide. They went out in a blaze of glory. They weren't, you know, you know, the idea of being a suicide by cop, you know, you, you want to kill yourself, but you're afraid to do it yourself. So you go out in the middle of the street and you start shooting a gun and the police shoot you dead. And then you're, you're, you, you got what you wanted. These guys went from Dylan Klebold and, and Eric Harris on wanted to, wanted to be remembered. They wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. They wanted to die but they wanted to die um, being remembered for their martyrdom. So it seems to me that that's very similar. Uh, that, that model is, is really important in, in all of this conversation because it's not just about these individuals. It's about the circumstances of, you know, the fact that they get beat up and bullied and that the administration always sides with the guys who are the bullies. Sure. There, there are there are football players. There are jocks. There are best. We love these guys, and so you have to ask some questions about the schools as well, not just the shooters. Great, um, and a lot of the manifestos that these these even the older, or especially the older shooters, write. It, it really kind of links back also to that aggrieved entitlement too, and I think that that's a way to differentiate the school shooters, the young boys, as opposed to Absolutely. the the guy that that flew the plane into the IRS building and and how you know the government took everything and and he has he, he feels like he he has nothing left, right? That's right. That's right. Listen, I'm afraid that I have to end this um, because I have sure. to get out of here by in, in 15 minutes. But absolutely, I, I appreciate well, thank- your, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, um, if would you uh, want to just let us know where you can find you and your work? And uh, sure, um, you can find information about me at my website www.michaelkimmel.com. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, Chance. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye bye.